Our guest today is Sarah Parkin. At the age of 40, Sarah was a primary school teacher, mum of four, and had taken her first steps into politics, becoming a district councillor in Lincolnshire. Twelve years later, Sarah has set up her own tuition business. She's a county councillor, a gardener, and a celebrant specialising in funeral services. Wow. Is this a portfolio career or is this the ultimate side hustle? Let's find out. Sarah, welcome to the Right Side of 40 podcast. We are delighted to be speaking with you. Before we start, we like to ask everyone, are you feeling on the right side of 40 today? The wine is helping. <laughs> that is probably the most honest answer we've yeah. had in quite a while. Yeah, that's I love a good it. An- that's a good answer. Yeah, a very honest answer. <laughs> so, Sarah, I don't know where to start. I've counted four jobs that you're doing at the moment, and they're all fascinating careers in their own right. Perhaps we should classically start at the very beginning. So tell us what your working life was like for you when you were 40. Okay, so way back when I was married, four kids, very committed to what had been a teaching career and had become very disillusioned with the way education and teaching was going within schools. Just couldn't see where the the focus was genuinely on children. What age of Um, children were you teaching? I was in primary. Primary, lovely. Now, a very wonderful head teacher in my hometown in Louth gave me the opportunity to teach one-to-one language tuition to his pupils. You know, in the days when schools had money. (laughs) And And so I did that for a period of 10 weeks with pupils there. And just as a result of that, the, the, the family started saying we've really valued this can can we come for another 10 weeks but they were only allowed 10 weeks in one school year so they then started asking if I could do private tuition and that was how the private tuition started from that one-to-one tuition scheme so that then meant obviously if you if if you're one-to-one tuition you are entirely child focused it's a wonderful wonderful way to teach because everything that you do is entirely bespoke to that individual child and 12 years on then I am still doing that and loving it I've always been as well a bit of a political animal <laughs> and about you got that, that sense time, from your CV <laughs> about that time um one of my objections to education the education policy nationally was um the whole agenda over academies and that kind of ran parallel with my eldest daughter starting secondary school. And we had chosen her secondary school because it was small, it was comfortable, we knew the staff. It, it was clearly the kind of place that a child like my eldest was going to thrive. And then just as she'd been accepted, this massive plan to merge it with a whole load of other secondary schools in the area and academise it came into being in the February before she started in the September and I just went off like a grenade because I knew the policy was wrong but fundamentally I knew that was wrong or felt that was wrong for my daughter Hmm. so I did what every angry person does um, while washing up and decided to start a Facebook group oh yes it's the it's the building blocks that found out there were lots of angry mums And by the end of the night, I had like a Facebook group of two to three hundred people and we'd got a campaign going. I was a Labour Party member back then 
And so Labour Party members got gathered around to give me a hand. We ended up on, on Channel 4 News, on the front page of the Education Guardian. And suddenly I had this, I, I addressed the National Union of Teachers Conference that and had suddenly found this. And when this was complete panic mode, because I was just a mum. And then on the back of that, I was asked to stand for election that May to the district council. Really on the back of that campaign, I was then absolutely gobsmacked to win. I'd never so much as won a raffle <laughs> up until that point. So then suddenly you win an election. I was like, oh, okay. The, the tuition and the council life actually ran really quite happily next to each other because obviously the council stuff was daytime yeah. evening stuff was tuition I could and still do left, school runs you'd left teaching by this point yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so it, it was quite a really it was a really nice work-life balance at that point for the kids when they were young obviously I didn't do the tuition in school holidays hmm. the council stuff always had an Easter and a summer recess so it kind of made sense in terms of work-life balance for me then, it mm. was perfect. So really, that wasn't a choice that came out of me being overly politically ambitious or even overly business-minded. Mm. But it really, really suited us as a family at that point. But what's involved in being a local councillor? You know, you must have known something before you jumped no. in and... No, I was completely naive. Um, I'd never ever considered standing for election. Um, we were literally two days before the deadline for nominations and I was presented with a pack of nomination papers and asked, please, please, please sign them because we think you'd be really good at it. And there was a thought that kind of was running around my head at the time that the worst regrets are the things that you turn down and you don't do. Mm -hmm. Now, I could have done it and regretted it, but at least I would have known it wasn't for me. So in the end, I just decided to jump to jump it's, in. It's pretty brave, though. It is amazing. I mean, I mean, maybe well, just because you felt so strongly about the campaign and it kind of, yeah, there was the momentum to it, and I can yes. see how that can happen in the way you describe it. But it's still brave. It was a really happy accident, mm. and, and although although I am now moving out of the political arena. For, for reasons which we'll probably go on to it's not without a great deal of gratitude for yeah. what it taught me in terms of my own self-confidence my own self-belief and in fact the, the decisions that I've made since my marriage breakup have all stemmed from the increase in advocacy I suppose and self-awareness that has come from filling that that role. So what did you have to do as a councillor like what impact do you think you've had or do you know that you've had well you this is really interesting because as I this sounds like I'm blowing smoke at my own bum and I apologize for that but <laughs> go for um, it if you can't there, blow there smoke are... up your own bum whose bum can you blow smoke up that sounds like a Tinder And question, other famous Caroline. quotes from... <laughs> and other socially yeah. awkward questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, other famous there, quotes by philosophers. <laughs> there are 
tangible and physical things. I was really lucky to get involved with some really wonderful community projects, which were always my favourite things to do. So the skate park that we had now have in Ralph by the Leisure Centre, I can look at and go, I'd, I'd had a key part in that. There's other projects like that in town that I know I helped the groups facilitate and advocated for them. And that's, that, that's brilliant. And I look at, there was a house that was due to be demolished and we saved the house. And so there, there's this tangible things. But I think that the thing that really sticks with me is my casework in that you do have individuals who bring housing issues, children's services issues, that kind of thing. A colleague actually said to me, because I've now stepped down from the district council, and he said, even the people who hate you know that you've really looked after your residents. That's pretty amazing. That's and high I'll, praise. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, that's a big compliment. I'll take yeah. that. But what really I, I got into in terms of the district council responsibilities was public health and leisure, culture, that kind of thing. Um, I was a, appointed by the district council as a director of a, a company, a charity called Magnavita, who were responsible for the delivery of culture and leisure within the district council. And that kind of opportunity to serve as a, as a trustee, as a director, on that organisation was just nothing short of a privilege. And what what was it about it that you enjoyed so much? I'm I'm not entirely clear what they do. I think it was because I um, could find mirrors of my own life in the eve. Mm. So I had gone from but being relatively well, very overweight, very unhealthy, that kind of thing, to really suddenly becoming alive to fitness and health for not just my physical health but my mental health. And it had transformed me. Mm. I wouldn't have had the confidence to stand for government. It's nothing to do with appearance, but it was to do with how I felt as an individual. And really my own route into that makes me very, very passionate in terms of health promotion. Um, as I say, yes, for physical health, but also for mental health. Mm. And I think that part of the problem and part of the problem as to why I have completely fallen out of love with local politics and local government is that national government has stripped us bare so all of those really good things that we want to do in terms of preventing people getting to crisis whether it be in public health or whether it be in housing or early intervention for vulnerable families we now can't do yeah, that is massively frustrating. And you're not it, the only one saying that. It's, no, 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 no. Uh, and yeah. I now, I've just got to the point now, after 12 years, where I am just depressed and frustrated of saying no to my residents. Mm. I didn't come into local government to say no. Mm. Well, you and... came in to change things, although I didn't want to interrupt you at the time. But weren't you just a mum? When you said that, I thought, oh, no one's just a mum, the way she described herself. No, that's fair. But you you came into it with ideals and a passion yes. and driven by what you thought was right for children and parents. And yes. there's no such thing as just a mum because all of those skills, all of those interests, all of that knowledge you put into politics and it's become what, another career for you. What, what I mean by that was that... I was a woman who had got no idea that opportunities for me in politics existed. Yeah. Never well, even crossed my mind. That's so interesting. And, and in a way, 
that has been my political downfall because I was never really attuned into the way party politics worked then I I naively thought I could be everybody's friend all I have met the absolute best people in local government both as councillors and as offices and I am profoundly grateful to have worked alongside them very skilled very talented individuals but I've also met the other side yeah I've met the the dark dark side (laughs) (laughs) and how I mean how has it changed you as a person do you think and your approach to work um for me as an individual the confidence that it gave me at the time that my marriage breaking up was massive it made me realize when I've got it made me feel confident that when I felt the fire in my belly to have a row yeah I could actually have it and stand my ground and not be it really did give me as a woman a voice that's amazing and I will always always be grateful for that but then in terms of where I am now it would be entirely wrong for me to stay or to have stayed. So tell us about where you are now then. So where are you at now? Chaos, Eve. <laughs> it's not chaos. Did you not listen to the introduction? It's not chaos. It's, it's a portfolio is, career. It's Caroline. a portfolio career. And okay. the more, am I allowed to come in with a stat, Eve? I've got stats. Go so this is a report by Kantar published in February 2023. One in three people have a side job, mainly due to living expenses, actually. But the trend, what I thought was interesting was the trend spans generations. So 36% of millennials, 30% of Gen X, 21% of boomers. That's because they've paid off their mortgages, obviously. But 40% of Gen Z have two or more roles. And that's that's becoming more of the norm. Yeah. And some of it's about, you know, cost of living. But the other motivation, apparently, is that side hustles, as, as sometimes they're called, or this kind of style of career, gives you more control. Yeah. In the, and it gives you confidence <clears throat> that if one part of your career fails, it makes you less vulnerable yes. to changes that you can't control. How do you, how do you feel about that? I ended my marriage five and a half years ago and was then left in a situation where obviously on my own with four kids my youngest at that point was so my oldest was 17 18 youngest was eight and I think the thread that you will find in terms of what I'm going to say now is that you have to accept that there's no perfect situation and you have to make very deliberate choices as to which risk you're going to take and which opportunities you're going to ignore mm. and that they're time time bound if you like so faced with that obviously losing the main career from the house in terms of my former husband's salary I made a very conscious decision that I was going to keep my salary artificially low um, I'm saying this with the consent of my eldest. My, my eldest daughter at that time had very profound and significant mental health issues. Yeah. And in effect, at that time, I, I was acting in, in many respects as a carer. Mm. And I think anybody who has trodden that path with their child will know that at that moment in time, nothing else matters. 
Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at at that point, I made the decision not to change anything. Mm. So I carried on with the tuition. I carried on with the council roles. I went on to benefits. I went on to tax credits. Yeah. Because it, it was the only way we could... I honestly articulated that to the children, that this, this for now was what we needed to do and what was right. COVID obviously then sneaked upon us. For us, I think it was a real benefit. Um, my eldest by then had gone to university. She had to come home. And we all very much cocooned. And I think in many ways it was a very therapeutic nurturing time for all of us to heal. Because... I was going to say, you've just, as a family, you've just been through... Yeah something quite traumatic yeah so yeah I mean yeah can totally and, see that but I always knew <laughs> I always knew there was going to be a day of financial reckoning yeah that, <laughs> that just was not going to be sustainable now during Covid that was when I absolutely please talk please just if, if I talk too much about my garden just Stop me because once I start, I get a verbal diary and I'll go on forever. Um, no, talk it, about your garden. You told me that you didn't like gardening. I I didn't like gardening. It was my, my ex-husband's domain. I used it as a reason to be away from him. He was quite happy. <laughs> and then, you know, whatever, you know, I had no opinion, no passion for it, no like. And I was going to sell my garden. My next door neighbour wanted it. And a, a very close friend of mine said, knows me inside out and they said don't give yourself give yourself six months to a year and I think you're going to really enjoy it when you get into it it was a day after the first really? day I was like oh my god <laughs> it was like just completely falling in love and I haven't stopped talking about gardening since wow and obviously had all the time in the world so this was during covid when yeah. you were kind of as a family, you're cocooning. I mean, we were all in our cocoons, you know, a little bit, weren't we? There was a lot going on in the world. There was a lot going on in your family and you're all at home and you've gone outside and gone, oh, hello, plant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'd like to be my friend. <laughs> and I created what we now call the beer garden, which was just, I really wanted us to have a beautiful space where we could particularly when you started being able to meet people outside. I'd desperately missed my parents. Mm. And when you could start meeting people outside, to have this really lovely space. Um, I then started the tuition. I brought the tuition kids back and I taught them outside for summer. Which, by the way, is my best memory of school, particularly primary school. I just remember these lovely days when we'd sit, sit outside. and It was all really exciting. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupt. So... And then post-COVID, I saw a, I I knew coming out of lockdown, I knew that that there'd been a number of things that had happened. Um, I was very bruised politically. So I knew that that was a love affair that was coming to an end. And then I saw this job for a gardening firm and I thought, well, give it a go. So in fact, the day I had my first COVID vaccination was my trial shift for my first gardening job. But so with what? a dead arm. <laughs> COVID job was after, thank God. Yeah. But what was involved? Did you have to do some training for it or what was no, the job? I think, I think with gardening. Oh, can I just add as well that my daughter yesterday had her first trial for gardening job. 
Oh my goodness! Congratulations! You yeah. start. You started a passion in the family. Do you know what? I I love gardening, but the thought of how old were you when you started your gardening job? Oh God, it'd be three years ago. So what? Forty nine. Forty nine. Well. I don't know about you, but I, I'm in my garden and I love it and I do a lot of work, but my back hurts, <laughs> my knees hurt. I was going to say, did it ever, did you ever occur to you to think, oh, there's such a physical job at this age? Or, no. Or you... Yeah, but no, but yeah, but I mean, um, <laughs> the, 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 so anyway, so I go and get that gardening job and I do it just for a morning a week, but I always know that that's my route out. So I know I'm never going to stay. And then another opportunity opened up with the most fantastic company who um, I'm working with now. Big shout out to Elm Tree Gardening, based in Lincolnshire. Carl we will the put a link you with your episode. <laughs> we specialise on wildlife ponds and wildflower meadows and just, just loved it. Just loved it for my very first day with them. And I work for them now on a Monday and a Friday. And I refer to those days as my happy bookends of the week. So the beginning of the week and the end of the week, I know we're always going to be absolutely lovely. And it is very labour intensive. It's very physically mm. intensive. Sometimes when we're doing ground clearance and we've got the mattocks out and the chainsaws and all the rest of it, you, you go home and you know. You know you've done a good job but it's the most wonderful feeling because i never considered myself as being particularly creative until i started gardening i've and... seen pictures of your garden and you are and we will be posting some and you are very creative i particularly yeah. like the dishwasher full of pots yeah i like the way you use everything that you could get your hands well, on well do you know what caroline i had a lovely um experience i'm very fascinated sorry i told you not to talk to me about the garden no no go well, for it one of the things that I'm really interesting in is like the juxtaposition between everyday domestic appliances and items that we would just take to the tip and whether we can then make them beautiful or not. So I have an old microwave in my front garden that I always keep planted up with bedding and the, the, the dishwasher didn't go to the tip because now the racks are out and it's got trailing lobelias and petunias and that kind of thing. And to me, um, you know, there's an irony there about, you know, have you laid the dishwasher correctly? And <laughs> it's almost a piece of art. It sounds like it. It, it is, definitely. And, but you found so, a whole creative side of yourself. and Yeah, completely. Which actually, but through necessity, I don't think people necessarily choose this kind of side hustle career or portfolio career. What do we ever? Often it's out of necessity, but it does give you a chance to branch out into another thing. So the branching was no pun intended there. I've blossomed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I honest to God, I honestly feel this sounds like so stupid, but I honestly feel that gardening found me. How? Why do you feel that way? Just because it's the most natural thing in the world for me to do, Eve. I'm outside, which I've always wanted to be. I'm outside in, in these beautiful spaces and with, with people who inherently love the natural world and nature. And you are discussing the whole time about how you make an environment better. 
and how we can improve things for our customers and how I can improve things for me and my family and also our habitat. I don't know, I get, I get in a way, it's almost a sense of calling to it. It's really interesting you should use that word because what I've noticed through this whole conversation is there's two threads. One is a life of service and building things. You can't help yourself, I feel, somehow. I've never really thought about it like that. Um, I've always just followed what's made me feel warm and fuzzy mm -hmm. inside. And the gardening is just, whether it's my own or somebody else's. Just following from what Eve said, I mean, there's definitely a correlation in your, your work with the council, you were seeking to make people's lives better. You're creating better environments for people. And I see that you're doing the same thing in, mm -hmm. you know, in your gardening and you're, you're leaving behind in your life as you go through your career, you're leaving behind better environments. I mean, that's how it seems to me. And that seems to be the thing that drives you. You've got your family and you've nurtured them. You've got, you know, you're through your political career, you were able to help people. You talked about the one-to-one -one support that you gave. You love, you know, you changed your regular teaching career, which is essentially more stable and structured, to doing one-to-one -one tuition, setting up your own business. And I, you know, did gardening find you or did you find it? It's another way for you to create that environment and um, change mm. things. I, I've never really thought about it like like that, to be fair, Caroline. As I say, I'm just, this part of me that is obviously very aware of my own financial position as somebody yeah. who gave up her pension to bring up children and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. But also as well, because of my experiences and my personal experiences, I'm not very good at feeling constrained. I'm not very good at feeling restricted. I'm not very good at feeling controlled. And so for me... There is something about the freedom that the gardening gives and creates that is really important, not just to my bank balance. I mean, yeah. crikey, if you're not going to work <laughs> because it's improving your bank balance, then well, absolutely, get yeah. real. Something there's just something about it. Yeah. And there's other options, right? Like, you know, we were saying a minute ago that, you know, you could have gone back to a stable job in teaching, but you forged forward in this sort of portfolio, which is incredibly courageous. It's interesting because I, I, I think, you know, so I'm a freelancer now. I've been for a few years and, it, you know, it was always an unnatural fit for me because I was always nervous about, you know, where's the next paycheck? And I, I couldn't quite bring myself. But having been sort of forced into the position and to take the leap, it's been really good for me to yeah. not have those constraints. But it doesn't mean I'm any less nervous about where the next paycheck is coming from. And I find it hard to sort of juggle those things, whereas I'm only juggling one freelance sort of situation. It's always the same thing that I'm offering, whereas you're juggling a number of things, you know, so we haven't even talked about the celebrant business <laughs> yet, which. Oh, my you know. goodness. How I mean. Is it time? Do we talk about the cell? I mean, yeah. how did you? So you are a celebrant. Yes. Um, tell us what a celebrant is. Okay. There are different kinds of celebrants. Some celebrants do baby blessings. Some people do weddings. Some people do funerals. So we are by trade a profession who are looking at those kind of key pivotal turning points in people's lives where normally the default position would have been to involve clergy so it's the, so it's the legal services yeah like weddings and funerals and christening or maybe not christenings but that sort of and, baby blessings yeah 
for me, I have opted just to do the funerals, basically because I can't talk anybody else of being dead. <laughs> Interesting <laughs> principle. <laughs> well, the other option is <laughs> weddings. And somebody yeah, got divorced five years ago. <laughs> um, we're seeing but, a strong link. Best left. <laughs> And again, the celebrancy has been actually very, quite a sad coincidence, really, in that a neighbour died, a former neighbour of ours died very unexpectedly. Oh dear. And I went to his service, I know his wife very well. And there had been a humanist celebrant conducting the funeral. And I was very aware watching her that she'd worked really well with the family. I spoke to the, the wife afterwards and how she had created this narrative and this story that was so healing and so therapeutic and but very different from the kind of funerals that I'd been to before. And two things really that pulled, well, there were three things. First of all, I knew that at this point, as much as I lived the gardening, I was never going to be able to cross a financial threshold yeah. that meant that I could then start paying into a pension and really had a career that gave me that full because with the, with the best will in the world, I, I wasn't going to get to where I need to be with four kids on my own yeah. by the gardening. And that's not because I'm not paid well. It's just because winter's a winter. Yeah. And it, it was very difficult. But I also knew that I didn't want to stop the gardening and I didn't want to stop the tuition. So the, the, the fact is, was I was, I've always hankered after a career where I could write I did English literature for my degree. I love literature. I love poetry. I love story. Whenever I was writing reports, council reports and that kind of thing, I wanted them to be exactly right. And I love the whole process of writing. And then thirdly, the, the other element to that was part of my work for the county council until very recently was with adoption and fostering panel. And one of the things that's really important when you've got children who would come forward for adoption is that they have an understanding of their life story. And it doesn't matter how difficult that life story is and how complex the, the children need to understand it and they need to make sense of it. And they need it there the whole time. They need that awareness of their life story. That had been really passionately ingrained to me in terms of helping my own children come through the divorce hmm. with what are our stories and how do we relate to them how is my story different to my children's how are my children's stories different to each other and how do we articulate and express them in a way that we get that understanding about what was a shared experience but also one that we experienced individually if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely yeah. I really feel with my brothers that were not too far apart in age but I really feel what sometimes when we talk that we had very different memories yes. of our family yeah. and the circumstances yeah. because we are a little separated by age and our position in the family and yeah. just what was happening at the time and the age we were at the time you know it was just yeah it's, it's surprisingly different experience not, not yeah. in a bad way just no what it is basically no. but what I realized with the celebrancy was that there was this natural um I'm desperately trying not to say the word synergy because I really dislike <laughs> the word synergy is fine synergy. there was a synergy between life story work from adoption <laughs> and celebrancy 
in that when you are at a funeral now, in terms of a civil service, you are wanting to celebrate, you are wanting that person who has passed on, you are wanting their story to be told. Families want their stories to be told. And it's actually an incredibly powerful moment for that family to feel that they have had their loved one almost recreated for them during that service. Yeah. I mean, this is this you've come to this from since you've become a celebrant. But can I take you back to the funeral you went to of your neighbours? And you were saying about you were affected by the service. But wasn't it somebody you know who suggested that you like because you didn't just wake up one that you didn't go to the funeral and and afterwards think I could be a celebrant. There was actually a prompt, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Comment from somebody else. You never thought of doing that. And I was like, no. I guess it's a similar way to somebody, you know, to people saying, have you ever thought of something for local government? And me going, <laughs> no. Are you very suggestible? I am. This comes across in this podcast whenever I tell stories. I'm very suggestible. But it's interesting that, you know, somebody turned to you at a funeral and said that, you know. Yeah. And were you were you taken aback when she said that? Or did you think, no, oh. I went, because I knew that I needed to start getting real. Yeah. I, I needed, financially you know, COVID real. was long past most importantly my daughter who I'd been so worried about was flourishing she'd moved out of home she fantastic held a damn job and so I no longer felt kind of that, that that's you know god love her she's done so so well and I'm so proud of her but I then felt okay so now is now is the time when I can think of something else but I genuinely didn't know what the something else was going to be mm. and one of the things I have learned from politics and life in politics is that if you don't know what to do in a situation, do nothing. Do nothing until you do know. And then when you do know, snatch it. Huh. And that was that moment for me when I thought, OK, so I didn't I didn't jump in straight away the way I'd have done with the gardening and with the, the, the council stuff. I explored potential wages. I ex- explored what was actually involved. I looked at people who were offering training, did some market research. I went to see funeral directors in Louth, um, where I live. I went to visit the crematoriums that were local to me, just to kind of get a sense of, because if the market's already saturated with celebrants, then it, it, it wouldn't have been worth me doing. But those early conversations were really encouraging, actually. Hmm. Really so- encouraging. So how does one become a celebrant? Once you've done your research, what happened next? So I signed up for a diploma course and I can spent... You, can you do that online or is that a face-to-face mm, thing? Well, you can do it online, but really it, it was a six-month kind of home study. L- lots of writing, obviously, as you would expect. Um, lots of assessments. Um, some of it online but quite intense and then that culminated in a week's long residential course in October before I finally qualified and that was intense mm. it, it was one of the most intense weeks of my life also on top of just the intensity of the course my parents had decided to get Covid for the first time during that oh, week well that's convenient so, <laughs> if anybody listening to this is interested in being celebrant do it but do it properly what does mm. that mean? Do it properly. Do 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 the diploma course. Get the highest level of qualification that is out there. Because in fact, the families that you are working for 
absolutely deserve you to have the highest level of training that you can have. You are, again, this sounds a potentially a little bit pompous and I don't mean it at all but you are you are on sacred ground with those families yeah Yeah. you are dealing with them whether they are their most vulnerable and it is never far from my thoughts that every family deserves a hundred percent from me all of the time yeah What, what does the diploma course give you um it gives you a very strong reality check um it gives you the skills um in terms of writing mm-hmm. it gives you the skills in terms of interviewing families you be before you start planning to write a funeral funeral you will do an interview with the families and that could be like two three hours of you know fairly intense conversation it prepares you mentally for what you are about to n- not many people actually deal with death as their day-to-day profession mm-hmm. and so there is an awful element that, that there's an awful lot of this that is to do with how you protect yourself and how, how you, you you cope with that because it would be quite easy to get quite down about it potentially mm-hmm. um but I don't I actually find it incredibly life-affirming because I am dealing with these people who have had one of the things about the council stuff mm-hmm. is that you can get quite a distorted view of people's lives because people are only coming to you when there's problems. Mm. Mm. And it's not that, that, that there's a, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have come to me, but then doing adoption fostering panel, you you are always talking about families in crisis and you're talking about the real hard end of life. Where in fact, now what I'm doing is I'm going and seeing these families and I'm hearing these amazing life stories of really ordinary people who were bus drivers and they were dockers in Grimsby and they were proud because they bought their council houses and they had allotments and they worked two, three jobs. Um, I did a service today for a lady who had been widowed because her husband's trawler had been blown up in the Second World War. Oh my goodness. Off the the humper. And when you actually hear these stories... You are humbled by the tenacity of people to carry on through their lives. But also you have referred to you the power of friendship, family, love, and how, in fact, n- none of us actually do ever die because they we always leave that legacy. And I'll look out from the lectern and I will see the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren as a person who is there, whose funeral it is. And you actually realise that that sense of life story just carries on just through those people. And it's as life-affirming as the gardening. Yeah, I can see it's like you're giving voice to all the individual stories of the community. And actually, you're, in a way, telling their story and, yeah. you know, and how we're all interconnected. Our stories, our life stories are really, really important to us and really important to the people who love us. Mm-hmm. And at the end of somebody's life, it's really important that those stories are shared. 
Yeah, there must be something to it because there is definitely an increase in the not only the use of celebrants, but also the graduation of celebrants um, over time. The only stat I have is actually wedding celebrants, but it is an indicator. And there were in 2019 um, in a survey done by the Open University, the number of ceremonies conducted by celebrants from 2015 to 2019, so obviously pre-COVID, and I think the numbers are probably higher post-COVID, doubled. So there were about 9,400 celebrant-led ceremonies in 2019. So again, that's only weddings, but I do think there is something in what, you know, in what you're doing, either mm. for weddings or funerals, that is resonating with people. And I'm curious to know, like, what do you, what do you think that might be? I think people are now obviously we're a more secular society people have been brought up without going to church says the vicar's daughter um, <laughs> so I, I think because the church is no longer part of most people's day-to-day -day lives and the clergy aren't the default kind of go-to for those situations anymore i think some of it is to do with consumer choice people are used to having choice at mm. every element of their lives now and I think that most people now have been to a celebrant-led funeral mm. so it's now becoming more normalized. I wondered also about the choice where it's also it gives you the freedom to do something really personal and individualized you know whereas you know in the church it's like sorry we have a playbook you have to follow it. Well you say that Eve I'm wagging my finger at you <laughs> Not at you. At Good job, it's a podcast. For <laughs> <laughs> okay. the purposes of our listeners, Sarah is wagging her finger. <laughs> <laughs> Emphatically. There are, if you are going, I am passionate about this role and I'm passionate about doing individualized scripts for each service that I do. Now, when you think that each funeral is probably in terms of meeting with the family, writing the script, and delivering it and you're not then including your travel time i live in rural lincolnshire um and nothing is 10 minutes away <laughs> um, you are you are easily talking 10 to 15 hours work per service so for me to do more than four out four funerals a week is entirely unrealistic that's quite so you do have funeral celebrants who were doing four to five services a day and what those families are getting is a cut and paste job. I've talked to crematorium staff who are able to recite the words of the celebrant services before they've even started because they know what's coming and there's no personalization there's no joy in that so I, I would just say to people who may be listening who are looking to get a celebrant You'd need to make sure it is somebody who's doing individualized scripts. And that's where the training comes in, yeah. because the training then helps you be able to do that. It's funny because I knew we were going to talk to you about this. And I started thinking about the celebrant that we had at my mother's funeral. And we did spend as a family quite a lot of time sitting, talking about what we were going to say, you know, what songs we wanted. There were two things that really stuck out for me. And this one of them links back to what we were talking about, about different experiences of siblings that I realized that when we were all talking about it with the celebrant, that my my brothers had different memories of my mother that I did and songs that were associated with her because they just had 
different experiences of her or spent different times with her. And the other thing was that at one point, the celebrant said to us, kind of, I can't remember the word she used, but she said, do you not think this is a bit <laughs> I think what we were choosing in terms of, we were trying to make it like a funeral, you know, like what do you choose at a funeral in terms of music and everything? And I can thank her. And I was looking through the choice of songs that we'd had. In the end, we went for things that were really joyous, you know, and she put the joy back into yeah. the funeral. And she she just, with no. a few words, put us on the right track. Well, one of the questions that I will ask families if I feel it's appropriate is I will ask them, what was your loved one's superpower? So if, if your mum had a superpower, if your dad had a superpower, what would that have been? And when you've asked that question, then all of these wonderful stories and ideas mm. then fall out from that, because I think we all have a superpower. It's a great way to start. I can't think of many people who would start with that. I think that's awesome. That's really You've great. Got I'm going to be thinking that about all my family now, what their superpower is. <laughs> yeah. I think your superpower is to handle many jobs simultaneously. Because so far, I've counted you do tuition, you do gardening, you do celebrancy. Is there another gig in there? Or county is that... counselor still. Oh, county counselor. So that's four. Yeah. Well, yeah. where I am now. So... Being on my own with the kids, it, it's naive for me to think. The way I view all of this is that I have different sources of income and I see them as taps. And what I'm trying to do is work out which tap and how hard for how long. Now, I've come off county and the increase in my, sorry, I've come off the district council and the income that I am now getting from the gardening replaces that so that's fine and then in two years time I will I won't stand for election again for the county council so I will see out my term and I will carry on in that role the best way I can for the next two years but then then the trick for me is working out how to manage the flow of the celebrancy the tuition and the gardening because there's a role for all three yeah, I just have to work out as I go along what that role is. And it will change. You see, mm -hmm. the thing is, is that there's a natural balance between the celebrancy and the gardening. And at the celebrancy, you would expect to get busier over the winter. And in fairness, as well as coming off the district council, I have had to drastically reduce the tuition in that my students who have just passed their GCSEs, I hope they've passed their GCSEs. God love them. My <laughs> students who have just sat their GCSEs, God, I hope I've not just jinxed all of them. No, you've not jinxed it all. We're sending good vibes um, out to them. Normally at this time of year, I'm seeking to replace them because mm -hmm. I normally lose about half a dozen. And this time, because the celebrancy is going far better than I thought I could ever hope for, then I've turned the tuition cap off a little bit because I can't cope time-wise. Well, it sounds like your approach to celebrancy of delivering such a, you know, a high quality, engaged service in a way, people appreciate it. I think the lovely thing is, and it is that it's the funeral directors who are coming back. So the way it works is that, you know, they will meet a family and, you know, the, 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 I'm a num the, there's a number of celebrants who they can call on. And if they think I fit a family, then I'll get the call. Oh, that makes um, sense. 
it's interesting actually because one of the funeral directors who used me a fair but he said there's some families i would not let you anywhere near <laughs> I don't and know what then, to take from that. Yeah. <laughs> what, what does what that the mean? Profile is? <laughs> well, because because I do have a fairly informal and somewhat unorthodox approach to services. Okay. And he was saying some of the more formal families probably really quite that late. now. Mm-hmm. Because I have got a Star Trek themed one next week, which I'm planning at the moment, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> and also a James great. Bond one as well, which I'm gonna get my teeth into next week so i can see why people are in, are going for this that that definitely is putting the joy back in or the fun back in the funeral <laughs> i hope so i hope so but more I than am... the fun it's about the story yeah do you know what i'm seeing though with all of these things that you're doing there is a sort of cycle to them you know you've got the tuition and I don't know, you were talking about your kids and the tuition fitting in at certain times of year and your friends saying to you, just give it a season, give it at six months, see out a year in your garden. And then this feeling of, you know, the celebrancy and at certain times the gardening or the celebrancy will come forward. But there's this lovely sort of cycle of life going on around you. And it's obviously something that you tap into. And I, I wonder if, you know, actually, I know that most of what you're doing is very, you know, is as we all are, is very practical. You're being pragmatic and practical about your financial situation. You've got family to support. We all need money. You know, that is the basic facts. But you seem to have tapped into something that suits you and how you feel about life. And it's giving you exposure to things where you can, I don't know, you, you can add to that cycle. Normally, when you talk about being a gardener and, and a celebrant, they go, that's a really weird combination, but it isn't at all. No, I can see there's that. There's such a natural synergy between, I've said that word again, um, <laughs> there's such a natural harmony <laughs> <laughs> between them, because all of them, both of them are actually about life yeah, and yeah. In, in living. And I think it's also about leaving a legacy. When I think about my own children, the kind of legacy I want them to have, I want them to be resilient. You want them to live. All of this is about living. I want them to have joy, but I want them to be able to... We're all going to go through these times. Mm. We're all going to have these times where we could be broken entirely. What I long for for my children more than anything else is that when they hit those times, they are resilient enough not just to survive them, but to come out with joy. Mm. And I think that has been the situation that really I've been forced into, Mm. but one that I've still managed to kind of create through finding this fairly weird career path. I mean, obviously this has happened to you and this has taken you down this path, but we we all have these these blows that we suffer, don't yeah. we, in life? They're very different things at different yep. times. And it is about resilience. But also, yeah. you know, it it's what makes up a life. And I love the yes. fact that you talk about funerals being about life. Because I must admit, that's not the first thing I think. And I don't think that's the first thing people think. And it gives a completely different perspective to it and I I can almost see how you were more attracted to that than weddings because in some ways weddings is a moment and it's the beginning of a life really isn't it whereas you're looking at that in the same way that you know you're preparing your kids for life 
it's kind of where you want them to end up, to be able to look back on a life well lived and to have those memories and those stories. And it's very life affirming. Sarah, oh, it's, it's a totally different way of looking at things. I'm um, incredibly lucky. Hmm. I'm incredibly lucky to have found it. I really, really am. I'm so grateful for it. Could you do it forever? Is that the plan? Yes. Yeah. I feel, Eve, at the age of 52, I have found what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's and amazing. I like and I like that you feel that it's okay to have found it at 52. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and I I also love that I can imagine you aged, you know, 70, 80, still doing this. And I yeah, think that would be great. Is, the, 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 this is the difficulty with the gardening, Caroline, you touched on earlier. There is going to be a point at which physically I am not going to be wielding a mattock and clearing brambles. I will not be able to, to, to do it. And this is why looking at those taps that I have available in terms of the tuition and the celebrancy, um, it's really important to just to keep all of them going and as I say at the moment I have made a decision that the the tuition I will turn off a little bit Mm -hmm. because I still have to balance that county council role and then if when I come off the county council I need to start turning that tap harder again I I will I will do so. I I was just going to ask does this kind of career does it give you anxiety? Yes. Yeah tell us more about that. Yeah, and I think the thing is as well, for me, because I'm single and because I'm on my own with the kids still, it gives me huge amounts of anxiety. And it's about, um, I think I talked earlier about being very, very deliberate in your decision making. Um, If this is the kind of thing you're looking, if you're looking at theories about becoming self-employed, what you have to accept is that this is not a pathway just to be trod lightly. There is an awful lot of time commitment. There are many 12 to 15 hour days. There's many days when I now feel, having prioritised the time with the children and not feeling guilty about that, there are some days now where I am thinking, I don't think I've even looked at any of them today and I feel guilty. Mm. Because what I've had to do is choose a path now that is different to the path we were on then but they understand that and we've articulated that and they recognize it so what you have to be aware of is that there is no magic pathway there's no yellow brick road to this it's all graft Mm. to be fair though there could be other jobs that you were doing full-time and you could easily do a long day and not see the kids I, you know, but, but, but there could be. I think the thing is, Caroline, when you're self employed, I, I, I do completely accept that. I think what causes the anxiety is that um, it's really hard to know when to say no. Yeah, no, that I'm really, that. really yeah. hard. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, the discussions that I've had about tuition and what's the right or the wrong thing have been really hard because you know it impacts on our intimate impacts on our children but at some point you have to have that quality of life Hmm. discussion and and that debate and I think I don't have any idea at all about for example annual leave I've got two weeks off in the summer and we're going on holiday and after that I just don't know I I recognize this from my freelance days where I just I found it really hard to say no to any work yeah I'd work and work and work and then I would have a gap and after a week I'd think I'm never going to work again yes exactly yeah yeah it's hard. so 
but the thing is is to make what i was going to say caroline is that you've got to make a conscious choice mm. so the risk i'm taking at the moment is potentially not to have the same income every month and to knowingly be going into a situation where some months i'm going mm, shit and just hope that's not around christmas or, or the holiday but then there's massive advantages to it what i'm saying is that there's no there is no option available to anybody in this life that is a magic one that is 100 percent bulletproof mm -hmm. so therefore what you have to do is make the decisions that you make really consciously and so you say okay so the, the risk of me doing x could be why so i'm going to do why I'm, I'm going to do something else to try and mitigate that risk so it's a bit like being one of the fairgrounds where you've got those crazy things popping up and you've got to keep whacking them and that's how my life feels sometimes is that i, I don't quite know how this is all going to pan out and i'm just trying to keep it all calm i'm, I'm going to add a add to this side hustles portfolio career or is it whack-a-mole it's whack-a-mole <laughs> well that's it whack-a-mole that's our conclusion i mean that's we can all do whack-a-mole yes. yeah it's whack-a-mole <laughs> yeah if you are going to approach life in this way in this whack-a-mole way you have to be comfortable with the uncomfortable what are the advantages that you see um the advantages are um genuinely loving all elements of what i do um now that i can see a route away from the political life i never ever 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 go to bed on a sunday thinking oh shit it's monday well that that's that's huge. a lot in itself yeah yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. you must um, never get bored and i think never bored I would, yeah can I, can I try boredom <laughs> like boredom for a rest yeah <laughs> i feel incredibly fulfilled in all of the elements of what I'm doing now. And I think, although I worry that I'm not seeing enough of the children, I feel the fact that I am happy and content professionally, and I have a bit of financial security now, because of where I am personally, I am in a position where I will probably never be able to afford to retire. In... Oh, that's all of us. That That's, that's yeah. the previous generation. Exactly. This generation's not retiring. Don't exactly. worry. So You're not alone. For me, facing those empty nest years is potentially a single woman. It's really important that I love what I do. Yeah. yeah. What I like about what you were talking about, too, is that if I think about a life of service, and one of the big advantages, I think, just from the mix of what you're doing is the politics may be service, but you're not having the greatest impact that you would like. Whereas I think it sounds like with the gardening and the celebrancy, I get the feeling that that you're having an impact and that's quite gratifying. And that keeps you going, I think. It's very, yes. Yes, I'm highly motivated. Yeah. In, in all of it. Because when, when my marriage broke up, in a way, I think... That, that that is grief it is a bereavement yeah not necessarily for that individual but for that life i thought i had and didn't yes. and it was that that life i had wanted almost that yeah. I, I was grieving and it's, it's the life that you were having and it's the future life that you wouldn't have yeah exactly exactly and, a, and what i was empowered by was people who were those times when I thought that I was drowning, they would come to me and we would go for coffee or a beer or they'd phone and 
for those times, I felt that I could breathe again. I felt like they were holding the situation for me. I knew I was going to take it back, but for the time that I was with them, yeah, I was breathing again and it felt okay. So the people who did that for me, I will take to my grave the gratitude forever. I realised then that that was an enormously powerful thing to be able to do for people. And I think because I understand how powerful that was for me and how life-changing it was for me, that is what the celebrancy has become. Not in a way that means I get personally involved in their lives and, you know, I probably get to know them for a period of three to four weeks. But just to have that opportunity to hold people in that position, give them the reassurance. They are, when I say to my families, you will be okay, I know they will be if they have those people around them. And it's incredibly powerful and a real privilege to be able to do that. So we won't tell the other jobs, but do you have a favourite? In all honesty, no. If I could make a living just doing the gardening, I would probably settle for that. But then it would be a settle. I find that there's an intellectual and a mental challenge with the celebrancy in terms of the writing that I'm really enjoying again. It's like being back at uni where you've got to go, okay, so this is my word limit, this is my time limit. Really enjoying the intellectual challenge from it. I like the idea of writing a short story because that is what you're doing, I think, yeah. right? You're writing the short story of this wonderful person's life. Yeah. But I really like the example, too, that you're setting, especially for those, you know, young women that you're raising, is that it's possible, you know, yeah. that there's other options and, you know, you're modeling a, a different life. And sure, it's got anxiety uh, that comes with it. There's financial worries. But you're you're modeling how, you know, how to figure it out. And it sounds yeah. like you've got great conversations with them and you're really transparent and sharing with them and you're, you're teaching them how how to you know how to adult in this yes. really complicated way which is amazing but that comes down to the resilience thing yeah i think that is a great place to leave it's it, a great I, I place think. to leave it yeah thank you oh sarah honestly you've had me in tears oh nice no you I'm really nice. have you've it's had been me great listening it's, to it's you it's just so beautiful some of the things you said about being a celebrant it's just, it's really moving. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, let us know about it. We also want to hear what you've been up to since turning 40. Get in touch on our website, rightsideof40pod.com. Follow us on Twitter at rightside40, Instagram at rightsideof40pod, and Facebook at the Right Side of 40 Podcast. All content is arranged by Eve and Caroline. And a big thank you to Terry and V. Neal for writing, performing, and mixing the original music.